Oh, my queen, said the royal sorcerer to Hatshepsut, with this amulet, you and your descendants are endowed by the goddess Isis with the powers of the animals and the elements. You will soar as the falcon soars, run with the speed of gazelles, and command the elements of sky and earth. 3,000 years later, a young science teacher dug up this lost treasure and found she was heir to the secrets of Isis. And so, unknown to even her closest friends, Rick Mason and Cindy Lee, she became a dual person, Andrea Thomas, teacher. Almighty Isis. And Isis, dedicated foe of evil, defender of the weak, champion of truth and justice. The Glop Culture Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks. With more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash ricochet. And here we are, second week of July, Glop Culture. I'm John Podhoritz here in uh, marvelous 90-degree New York City. Uh, with me, as always, is uh, Ricochet Major Domo Rob Long in sunny California. Hi, Rob. John, how are you? I am well. And in his palatial Washington, D.C. manse with uh, many dogs and I believe no wife or child to, uh, to disrupt his slumbers, uh, Jonah Goldberg. Great to be here, although not many dogs, many quadrupeds. Many quadrupeds. I apologize. Wait, what does um, that mean? I have. We have two cats. Oh, we have a we have a good cat and my wife's cat. <laughs> I see. I see. Wait. So. So. But. But. And the dog's still still there, right? The dog is still here. I see. She's still a handful. Yes. Completely she, uh, uh, overwhelmed by the cats. Yes, she's uh, she's deferential to the cats, which is embarrassing to us all. Mm-hmm. Well, I have uh, I have two uh, I have three bipeds in my house. My wife, my my son, and my younger daughter. My older daughter being off at camp. Uh, and, I thought you were uh, trying to suggest that your older daughter wasn't a biped, which would have been really cool. But she uh, <laughs> she she is a biped, um, though occasionally she does stand on her hands. So I don't know whether that makes her a quadruped. Um, and uh, I think it makes her ambidextrously bipedal. Very interesting. So, gentlemen, uh, we are we are speaking in merry tones uh, at a moment <laughs> of absolute worldwide calamity, disorder, decay, and meltdown. So, the question is: Are we in our in our apparent common good spirits? Are we whistling past the graveyard? Are we ignoring the fact by by being cheerful and speaking cheerfully that? Um, Everything that can go wrong outside of our borders and not and quite rather in our borders uh, it appears to be going wrong. What do you mean? Can we can we not be cheerful about some things? That's what Despite I'm asking. The fact that there's a continuing crisis. Well, of course you can be cheerful. I'm perfectly cheerful about the fact that I think that there's a Republican Senate on the way. I'm cheerful about the fact that they're. Um, According to certain places, I no longer have to see cupcake stores open everywhere. Um, lots of good things. I mean, look, things aren't really worse 
than they've ever been. They just now people feel compelled to um, or, or feel uh, allowed to mention them, right? I mean, we, we could, if you want, we could talk about the jobs report. No, but things are appreciably since we spoke. Uh, ISIS is since we last spoke. ISIS is taking over uh, Iraq. Okay, but before um, we go forward. Can uh, anybody yes. hear that ISIS is taking over Iraq and not have to rethink it so that it isn't the cartoon? You mean not the cartoon or you mean the incredibly hot 1970s uh, live action show? Oh, there's that too. Show. Oh, Mighty uh, ISIS. What oh, Mighty ISIS. Yes, yes. The most Joanna Cameron, <laughs> perhaps the most beautiful single woman ever photographed. On, um, on, date, not, on, on morning television. Uh, hey, uh, she's in. Uh, she was. Uh, she's in the. The kid stays in the picture. Right. She was briefly a Robert Evans girlfriend. So, see now, you guys, you, you know. need to be really careful because when you start talking about shows like that on the show, you are giving EJ Hill and the Photoshop crew hints about how they should true visually defame us. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. So I. I I will, I will, I will uh, change topics and remind us all that ISIS is no longer calling itself uh, the Islamic State uh, of Iraq and Syria, but is now simply to calling itself the Islamic State uh, with its um, cross-border interests in uh, in restoring the caliphate um, using uh, uh, using terror and uh, using terror and apparently wildly successful military paramilitary tactics. Um, one of the best stories of the day uh, or of the last couple of days came from Eli Lake in uh, The Daily Beast who uh, demonstrates in the course of this story that this notion that we were caught unawares by the rise of, of ISIS and its success, which was the line coming out of the White House, is, is not true that for at least uh, six to eight months the White House and the administration have been warned repeatedly of the uh, growing threat and uh, paramilitary power. Mm-hmm. Of this organization, and it simply chose to ignore it and pay no attention until the point at which uh, it was too late uh, to ignore and uh, conceivably too late to rectify um, what is um, without question uh, a foreign policy calamity of the first order with potential implications for uh, domestic terrorism here and terrorism in Europe. Wait, so uh, as these hardened as these hardened fighters return right. home after they uh, learn all their uh, ways of learn how to do what it is that they do, right? With Western passports, with Western passports, we there there are reports that there are as many as five thousand Americans who are fighting with with ISIS. That seems five thousand five thousand in Syria and Iraq. That's too many. I agree. It's too many. Yes, I think it's too many. Um, it's, it, it's too many. It's well, uh, look, I mean, sure Obama's made mistakes, but that's why pencils have erasers, right? Right. <laughs> um, right. Um, no, look. When I knew that John was going to be melancholy because the world's going to hell, and uh, it reminds me. I think I've told this story before on this podcast, but when Irving Crystal had Judge Bork in his office at the American Enterprise Institute watching the Clarence Thomas hearings. 
And at some point, maybe during the pubic hair and the Coke can exchange with Arlen Specter, um, the judge slammed off the TV and said, it's the end of Western civilization. <laughs> and, and Irving Crystal responded by taking a long drag off his cigarette, blowing the smoke into the middle of his office. Back then, you were allowed to smoke in your office. And simply said, of course it's the end of Western civilization. But that doesn't mean one can't live well. <laughs> and, um, I, I, you know, I'm, look, I, I agree entirely with John that this is a disastrous foreign policy situation, and I think it's overwhelmingly uh, to, the blame for it goes to Obama at this point because he's just sort of passive aggressively letting events unfold and then saying there's nothing he can do, and we can talk about all of that, but. Um, I'm a big believer. I'm just coming around more and more to the idea that conservatives can't be the dyspeptic ones all the time. Right. And, um, you know, uh, why can't we have a sunnier <laughs> outlook on life? We can um, live well. We can live well. And, and by living well, and I don't mean live well just, I mean, Irving probably just meant live well in terms of having a nice meal and a good cigarette. I mean, you know, living well in terms of living right. And, you know, walk around with, you know, set an example, have a smile on your face, try to have a sunnier disposition. It pisses off the left no end. And people want to, you know, I don't know about the strong horse, weak horse thing with Osama bin Laden, but I do think that people don't want to be part of a group that always sticks in the mud. And, uh, you know, this is hard for me because I, mean, I come from a long right. tradition of looking at the downside of things. And um and I think you know compliments are terribly bad luck and all of the rest. I mean I I, I am my father's son in that regard, but I, I think it's something that we should all work a little bit harder at in terms of you know having a, a cheerier look outlook on things. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know what? But, Transformers but, 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 you know, honestly, four really isn't the worst movie ever know, made. Honestly, <laughs> okay. But I don't, you're, don't have I mean, to go that far. Okay. You're an American. <laughs> Listening to this, right? I'm assuming you're well, not one of the five thousand who's now fighting <laughs> against us in Iraq, but you're the other. No, no, no. no. I, I, I hear the downloads in Syria are quite yeah, high. I, the we need to check on the uh, Americans. Yeah. There's a certain, I mean, especially because we start off the Middle East. So anybody who's still listening, there's this Middle East fatigue, which we had really before we went to Iraq. This kind of like, I really this thing now and this other thing, and I can't keep track of who's. Who's where and the what and the Hezbollah and the Hamas and the Chach and the Hayyeh. Oh, you know, too much. And so partly, partly – I love it when this, you go Jew. I, listen, I, <laughs> I've been working in Hollywood for 25 years. I'm about as Jewish as an Episcopalian guy can ever be. Um, I mean all the Hazarai and the Mishigas, it's too much. It, it's too much Suris. It's too much Ajita. I, I get it. Like I get the – the, uh, I get the American kind of shut off of like you, you see the headline that says something's happening in the thing and you just go to the next headline. Now, the, the, the bad news for Obama is the next headline's really bad too. The next headline is a uh, refugee crisis in America on our borders that no one seems to be reporting except for Drudge and a few other people. But it is in fact uh, a disaster, a humanitarian disaster. Um, it, worse than the Mariel boat lifts, I believe, 
and it's not getting the play. But but that, that's the next headline, and then you go to. I mean, each headline you drift onto, which is why there was, which why I found the celebration for the good jobs numbers to be so strangely muted. I would have thought that the Obama types would have like. Uh, Spend a you know a one week in celebration of our leaders' glorious new numbers. You know the wheat crop is ten percent bigger, but <laughs> but they didn't, uh, which I thought was strange. I think even they're tired. They're just it's hot and they're tired and all the news is bad and they're they're so exhausted and so bad at this that even the good news they can't quite bring themselves to trumpet as loudly as they should. Well, well, also I, 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 on the not being surprised by ISIS Eli Lake thing, I think. We're going to get a story, and it's starting to unfold now, that this White House wasn't surprised by the refugees at the border either. You know, I mean, right. there's the, the, the old Clinton thing about how if you find a turtle on a fence post, it didn't get there by accident. You know, um, this thing didn't um, – just, this just doesn't, doesn't happen spontaneously. There are reasons for it. Um, you know, busloads from Central America don't get all the way through Mexico and come to the United States and dump, you know, remarkably um, healthy-looking, clean kids um, at our doorstep, and it just happens um, by accident. There's something else going on here, and and I think it's it's really interesting. It's starting to piss off a lot of of people. You know that this story is getting purchased because there is a story on the front page of the New York Times today. This being uh, as we're talking. July 8th, Tuesday, July 8th, that basically blames Bush for the refugee <laughs> crisis. A story that points out that uh, it, there, the passage of the William Wilberforce uh, Act uh, at the tail end of the Bush administration um, changed the rules um, for uh, asylum for children um, and that this seems to have been the opening salvo in what has now become this gigantic refugee crisis. The fact that this piece of legislation was sponsored by Democrats and was passed by a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House, um, majority Democratic Senate and Democratic House, uh, which was the case in 2008, um, goes unremarked. The story literally says, starts at the Bush signing ceremony. Now, the (laughs) fact that the crisis, the fact that the crisis only emerged four and a half years into the Obama administration should not blind us to the fact that it's Bush's fault. I think that is, is self-evidently the case. Jonah's right. I mean, there is already uh, evidence that the immigration uh, ICE, the, uh, you know, the Immigration Enforcement Division, um, put out a, uh, a request ICE for... Is. Go ahead. ICE is <laughs> put, out a re- put out a request for contractors looking for... Um, help uh, for people who would have the right attitude toward uh, refugee children who could speak English and support proper values. Help wanted for humanitarian disaster to occur nine months from now. Right. No, but, you know, so, yeah, exactly. So there is, there certainly is evidence that this, you know, is, is not a surprise. I mean, what is interesting about the Obama administration as we now see it is um, after this, um, a frenzy of activity in 2009, early 2010, you know, uh, the stimulus, the partial nationalization of the auto industry, um, and then, and then Obamacare. Remember that? Um, it just seems so long ago. Is uh, that just is saying that, stimulus just seemed like, yeah. Oh, yeah, like eight track tapes or something. Yeah. Is that, um, it is astoundingly passive, 
uh, as a matter of policy. Its policy is passivity, despite all of the, we can't wait and all you figure out executive orders to do X, Y, and Z uh, in, in, in foreign policy most especially, but everywhere, the, the approach is not to act. It's like Bartleby the Scrivener. He prefers not to. Um, but wait, I don't really happen. think but that's but true. I don't think that's true, actually. What in foreign policy? Cer- well, certainly in foreign policy. Yeah, and, and, but it's actually it's almost worse than that, right? Because um, remember, after I mean, it, w- it was one of the. I mean, it was on 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 John your worst day. You would have a better segue than what Jay Carney tried to do after they killed Osama bin Laden, where they went straight from this shows that you know he, Carney goes. This shows the president's resolve on important issues like killing Osama bin Laden and comprehensive immigration reform (laughs) and and, and tried to immediately translate the Osama bin Laden thing into comprehensive immigration reform. And almost every single foreign policy accomplishment or priority or agenda item is really secretly uh, part of a domestic uh, agenda and – they constantly are trying to exploit that. So the, this domestic, this the stuff that's happening on our border right now with these kids, the White House is constantly saying, "Look, you know, it's proof that he cares about this situation because he's pushing for comprehensive immigration reform." But no one has made the case that comprehensive immigration reform, if it had passed a year ago, would have done anything right. to deter these kids showing up or would do anything now to send them home. But see, here's it, why I don't. I don't think. I don't think he's being passive. They, 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 it just, it's just blown up in their face. What they want to do is to maneuver the right and all the sort of anti-illegal sort of illegal immigration forces into being mean, right? That's the idea. They needed, a, they needed a topic for the fall, right? can't be foreign policy. can't be the economy. It can't be jobs even after a good jobs report. It can't be a whole – it can't be Obamacare. It can't be a lot of things. So it's got to be about something. It's got to be a you racists don't like people, brown people on the border. So – what they tried to do, I mean, I, I don't think it was passive at all. I think they, they allowed and encouraged and engineered this kind of thing so that big bad Republicans would be, uh, 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 you know, arguing against it and down there and yelling at, at Mexican people. That's what they wanted. What they didn't realize, of course, it was going to be this bad, this much of a disaster. This, this is a, this is not just a, a failure of policy. This is a PR failure because these people don't care about. Mexicans or South Americans or Central Americans coming into this country illegally. They do not care. They don't care that their lives are horrible here. All they care about is scoring political points, and this blew up in their face. This seems to be classic, a classic, exhausted, really, really low-grade, amateur-hour uh, political operation by people who are now finally you know, uh, have, don't, have no more tricks, in the, uh, no more rabbits in the hat. Uh, Everyone looking at this thing in the border is blaming Obama. Everyone looking – people even people who are on the fence about building a fence are now – want to build a fence. The idea that it, there's, there's an amnesty bill coming out of this is ludicrous. Uh, he's done more harm to his own side, I think, than a thousand uh, you know, um, Eric Cantor defeats. Listen, that is, that is absolutely true and I am – a perfect example of this. I am um, as liberal as a as a Republican, morally liberal as a conservative person can be. Uh, in you know, at this moment, 
uh, on the matter of immigration. And I believe that, you know, until something is done to, or, you know, to get to establish order at, at this moment, that it would be madness to, to advance immigration reform. I mean, I think politically it's impossible and functionally, uh, you know, the law of unintended consequences is now, has now, you know, spat up 50 to a hundred thousand, you know, uh, kids, um, who are yeah. sitting, you know, who are, who are sitting in these camps and buses and, and areas and being flown from Texas and Arizona to California. And, you know, there are buses blocking them. And, you know, this is not, this is, this is, this is exactly how public policy cannot and should not be done. And you can United see, States. you can see them. You could, you know, they're in the white house looking at this thing. This is going to turn our way soon. Right. This is going to however, turn our way soon. There's a some, pony in here somewhere. Some, yes, some right. however, exactly. however, but some crackpot right winger right. is going to do something awful. It's, however, you know, I, I really, that. I really do think it is important to point out that there is a risk on the horizon and uh, of 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 a return to a 2012 rope dope on the part of the Democrats that the Republicans may be falling into. And that has to do with the response to the Supreme Court's decision in the Hobby Lobby case where the Supreme Court ruled uh, that uh, it was um, it was an unconstitutional abrogation of uh, the freedom of religion for law to compel private citizens formed as corporations to pay a third party to support um, you know, uh, abortifacients that they found immoral. And uh, now the question is, are Democrats going to go very, very hard on the issue of contraception and paying for contraception and government supporting contraception and all of that? And will this then cause the right to react the way the right did to Sandra Fluke and uh, and when suddenly there's going to be yet another uh, revival of the notion that Republicans are so hidebound that they not only don't support uncomfortable matters even for Democrats like, you know, th- that they oppose abortion, but that they oppose contraception as well. And I think there is a real risk here that Republicans are going to be dragged. But, you know, but Republicans have to decide they're bored of talking about Obamacare and uh, the border. I mean, there's so uh, the the, the target. It's such a target-rich environment. I mean, if you're running, uh, if you're running, if you're uh, Mary Landrew, right? You're running against Mary Landrew. Uh, Obamacare still really works for you, but probably the border does too. You don't necessarily have to go to contraception, but if you do, you might find that be a be a, be a good topic. I mean, if you're depending on who, which 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 uh, state you're running in. You've got a choice, don't you? Well, of course you have a choice, but but Republicans seem to have a gift for falling into the trap of if the if the left says it, John, you know, they're, they're going to say the opposite. John, there's yes. no way the Republicans can mess this up. There's no <laughs> possible way. I don't know why you're so nervous. I don't there's know. No, it's literally impossible. Literally impossible. I defy anyone <laughs> to show me how. I, do, I, I, in fact, you hear me, Lord? 
Uh, there's easy, no way they easy. can <laughs> right. <That's... laughs> Rain it in just a little bit there. Yeah, right. Um, oh, no, I, 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 I sort of agree with with John. I mean, there is this tendency, and this is one of the things I was getting at about trying to be more cheerful. Right? There's this tendency. You see it particularly with with young conservatives, kids on college campuses and stuff, who think that because being on PC about a certain issue pisses off liberals, that's its own justification. And we take these these cues from people on the left um, because they get obsessed about free birth control that we have to talk a lot about free birth control. I just, you know, the best, one of the, Mitt Romney's only truly great moments when he was running for president where he just sort of dismissed Stephanopoulos's question out of hand saying, look, no one's talking about birth control. Who cares? about birth control is just fine in this country and moved on. Right. I, I think that is the approach that conservatives should have is saying, hey, look, you know, these guys, they've, <laughs> the world is on fire. There are children clawing to get into our country and uh, the economy still stinks and they've had five years, and Obamacare is going to ruin your health insurance, and they want to talk about, you know, free birth control. Um, that should tell you everything you need to know about how strong their position is on everything else and not get caught up in all of that nonsense. But someone will get caught up in all of that nonsense because some people actually don't want to have that argument. And I, I just think it's sort of crazy for them to politically. Right. All right, so uh, now that we've... There's no way they're going to screw it up. Relax. (laughs) No no way. Don't worry. Don't worry. Um, So... uh, I'm going to drive by your house on election night if we don't take back the Senate and shoot out your porch light. (laughs) A reference to what sitcom was that? I don't know. Uh, Wait, John? I don't know. It's uh, from MASH, where Colonel Blake... um, is talking about how he taped up the wrong knee on some football player. And he says, every year on the anniversary, he comes by my house and shoots out my porch light. I didn't watch that (laughs) anti-American tribe. I hated that show. Did you really? I hated that show. Oh. I wasn't wasn't crazy about it either. Self-serious. Too many puns. I I liked the first five seasons, but the later stuff really was awful. I agree. Yeah, yeah. War is Um, awful. <laughs> this I just hate war. I hate death. <laughs> and the Emmy goes too. It's like they want Emmys for everything. I hate yeah. death. Yeah, I hate. I hate death. Written by Alan Alda. Directed by Alan Alda. There's a great story Alan which I will tell that I is a totally apocryphal. I'm sure it's not true, but um, he once wrote an episode of Mash uh, that in, that the, that the 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 story the story of the show was that his character <laughs> had a had a uh, concussion. He was out in the field helping some people because he hates death and um, some um, Korean peasants and he had uh, fell down or something and he had a concussion. And so he knew he couldn't fall asleep because he fell asleep. He would lapse into a coma. So he had to stay awake. So he talked um, to the Korean family. Uh, that was a real did, episode. That's yeah, a real did, episode. And did long monologues to them. And they, of course, they're Korean, so they have no dialogue. So it's just him talking, uh, which it shows you there's a certain kind of fantastic self, I don't know what, that leads you to write an episode of an ensemble comedy in which you do – it's entirely a monologue by you and the people on screen with you cannot talk. 
because they speak only <laughs> Korean. <laughs> There's never any dialogue. It's just monologue. And they would cut back to the, 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 the camp every now and then because they had to because uh, contractually a, a MASH episode uh, you know, involved X number of characters. So he, he was forced by contract to write for them, other people. And uh, they would all – I think their dialogue was always this. was like, hey, where, where is Hawkeye? I don't know. I'm getting worried. <laughs> and at one point – I think the guy who played BJ, Mike Farrell, said uh, at the table reading, this is apocryphal. I don't know if this is true. said, I'm wondering if I could say um, here um, uh, something more like more, – more than I'm – I've said I'm worried already. I wonder if I could say uh, this is getting serious or I'm really concerned. Um, and uh, Alan Alda sort of put down his reading glasses and said, um, hmm, I'm going to have to invoke something that Doc Simon, Neil, Neil Simon, everybody calls him Doc – uh, said to me when I wanted to uh, change a line in in, in the California suite, and that's that. Uh, really, I'd, I'd like to, I'd really like to stick to what's written. <laughs> uh, and what's amazing about that, of course, is that Neil Simon's sort of famous for saying, uh, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." Flip around, I don't care. Just don't mess up the jokes. <laughs> just don't mess up the jokes. In the uh, setup or punchline, you're not allowed to change it. But if it's just like to get you across the thing, or to get you over the refrigerator, or whatever. Just some Michigas, you know, go ahead. You can pocket <laughs> Uh You know, I really think it's time that I had a highball. It's me being a Gentile. <laughs> you being a wasp. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're right because it's uh, before noon. So that would, be, that would be something that we would say. Martha, ring for the girl and have her bring me a highball. <laughs> and a sardine on a toast point. Um, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, that, this reminds me of, you know, one doesn't think of um, Tom Hanks as being, uh, if you think about sort of vain actor, like caricatures of vain actors, Tom Hanks would probably be the last actor that you would think of. But I, I then read this thing. So, or somebody told me this thing about how if you're sending a screenplay to Tom Hanks, no matter what you actually want the screenplay to be called, you have to make the title of the screenplay his character's name or he won't read it. And in fact, <laughs> if, you, if you think about the movies that he's made over the – many of the movies he's made over the, over the, over the years, uh, you know, Charlie Wilson's War – and uh, Captain, Captain Phillips. Phillips and Larry Crown, which was his own horrendous thing. Um, uh, it apparently is pretty much the case that even with Tom Hanks, you know, he wants he he wants the movie to be about his character. You know, yeah. Well, it's that 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 it's that um, the old thing of an actor flipping through a script to try to find uh, his lines. You know, he turns the pages as a Crap, 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 crap. Me, 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 crap, crap, crap. <laughs> Flips the pages looking for his, his own stuff. Happens a lot. And often you'll find actors will come to you after a rewrite and say, uh, that rewrite was so fantastic. Thank you. It really yeah, clarifies it. And all you did was give them two more jokes. Well, you know, I heard, I heard one – I heard one uh, – this is a true story. I will not say what the movie is or who the performers were, but this is absolutely true that uh, a recent movie um, – uh, an actress was cast uh, in a part as the mother and it's a secondary part and uh, otherwise the movie is a romance between the two leads 
and the actress uh, reading at the table read for the first time uh, turned to the director and said, I've just never read a more moving mother-daughter story in my in my life and i really think that the con- the, the you know the how the mother handles this is really one of the most powerful evocations ever and the story has nothing to do of course with the, mo- with, with the mother <laughs> well speaking of mash that was an old story of uh, someone once asked william christopher who played father, father mulcahy uh when the show had, i think it was only on for a couple of years said that, well, so what's the show about and she, it's about this priest Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, like, gentlemen. Well, we got to talk about Hollywood for a minute, but, but we will. Ahead. But I think yeah. I have to say at this moment that this podcast, the Glop Culture Podcast, is brought to you by Audible.com. Remember, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash ricochet, and we are each going to make a pick and my pick is a really remarkable new book called supreme city how jazz age manhattan gave birth to modern america by donald l miller this is a a history of new york in the 1920s that describes in the most fascinating way how this port town um and you know center of wall street commerce became the world's leading commercial metropolis over the space of 10 years and how mid, how midtown was developed how the rise of the uh, mass entertainment business completely reshaped uh uh the the business of new york how the rise of mass retailing in the form of department stores um, completely reshaped the nature of american commerce and how all of this really happened within 40 square blocks um, in in New York City, it's uh, it's one of the best works of popular history I've read in a very long time. Um, it's again the title is Supreme City. Uh, the author is Donald Miller. Uh, it is uh, well worth your time. I have a pick. Yes, but it's a pick from the future. <sighs> a pick from the future. <laughs> um, uh... I'm, it's, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I mean, uh, how many how many times have we talked about liberal fascism, et cetera, on these on these podcasts? Lots. What never? Well, now, well, now we're going to talk about my book or my books, Bob's. which were now were republished uh, republished this week, I think, on the 14th, I think, in London at Bloomsbury. You can get them on Amazon, and soon they're going to be on Audible. Uh, we're still trying to. Um, I'm still lobbying to be to do the reading um, about it. But uh, uh, for, for it, but but they're going to be on Audible in the next uh, three four months. Uh, and Rob's, uh, I will I will put in a pitch. I've done what? this on the show. What? Oh, oh for yeah. Rob's for Rob's book, Conversations with My Agent, which is now yeah, one of the two or three best books ever published about show business. I will say. And uh, yes, if you can listen to it, particularly if Rob reads it, you will be a very lucky person indeed. Do you, do you read it, Rob? Uh, well, uh, they haven't yet asked me. Can I? I, I was going to bring this up before this conversation even came. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of books on tape lately because I'm trying to figure out a next book. Um, and um, I didn't record liberal fascism myself, but I did record tyranny and cliches. And I got so much feedback from people saying how important it was and how much how grateful they were that I, I recorded uh, that I did the 
recording myself. And as I listen to a lot more audiobooks these days, I can really see why. Because there's just something that the, the author knows how the sentence is supposed to read. Right, right, right. And it really, I mean, it, it, it's not just um, that it flows better. It's that you actually convey the ideas or the arguments or the stories in your book better than anyone else could. And you know the author is the one person who's allowed to um, go off book, right? You're like, I, I can override. If it's a professional doing it, they are contractually obliged to read exactly what's on the page. If I do it, I say, hey, look, this makes no sense read out loud this way. I'm going to call an audible, and just, so to speak, and just change it. I'm allowed to. And, I, and, and you, you don't get paid very much money, and it's a lot of work, I have to say, but um, I, I basically, if at all possible, I'm never. If I ever do another book, I'm never going to let anyone else record it. I think well, you know, I uh, I too recorded uh, my book, Bush Country, uh, which is available on uh, on Audible, I should say, and I read it myself, and I found it entirely unnecessary <laughs> to override to override the li- the uh, the limpid beauty. Of, of my prose. In fact, I, I sometimes fell silent with admiration <laughs> at the clarity and wit and overall poetic. Yeah, it was, genius well, that's, there aren't that the many. Prose. There aren't that many perfect books. There just aren't. It's, but there are a few. There are a few, and uh, and, and Bush Country was one of them. That, was, that, that one of them. was one of them, and Can't She Be Stopped was not another. Anyway, um, so. Uh, Jonah, uh, you've uh, been listening to a lot of uh, audiobooks, but I believe you have a favorite. Well, uh, I'm going to give one self-serving one and one real one, um, and one recommendation of uh, one not to get. Autobiographical Reflections by uh, uh, Eric Vergelen, do not get. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, Although I think I'm the only person to ever get it. Um, uh, The one you should get is Capitalism and the Jews by Jerry Mueller. Um, it's a really, really interesting um, book, uh, and the, the Yiddish isn't over don't, the top. Excuse me. Don't say oi. A chapter of that book was published in Commentary Magazine. So, All right. <laughs> enough of the cavelling. And, uh, and then on a self-serving one, because it's back in it – Get me that, a julep. <laughs> it seems that Barack Obama is determined to keep, the, the, keep extending the long tail of liberal fascism sales. Um, let me plug liberal fascism, which I uh, got a nice shout out from Charles Murray the other day in the Wall yeah. Street Journal, and um, which gave it a nice little bump on Amazon. And uh, uh, at some, one of these days, I'm going to have to put out a revised edition to take account of all the wonderful things that have happened over the last, you know, half decade. So anyway, there you go. Uh, now, new and improved liberal fascism. New, improved liberal fascism. It uh, is. 2.0. Not your father's liberal fascism. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, so um, uh, our, uh, our esteemed producer, Scott Immergut, actually points out that we, we, have, uh, we, we are in a strange period in which um, many of capitalism's most wondrous traditions seem to be collapsing before our eyes, by which I refer to, number one, the cupcake craze – which appears to be in uh, now terminal decline. 
And the second is the fact that um, box office, Hollywood box office this summer is down 16% from last summer. So don't think that you can just stop at the corner, buy a cupcake, and go see a good movie because the <laughs> cupcake store is closed and there ain't nothing to see at the multiplex. So, well, I mean, there's pl- the, the problem on? is there's plenty to there's plenty at the multiplex now. They 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 are projecting film onto screens. You yes, can they go, are. but no one's. I mean, people are pe- people are not going the way they are supposed to go. They're not. Go- People are not watching TV. TV viewership is down. This is a, this is a summer in which Americans finally, I think, said uh, we got a lot to do. We can't do everything. So everything, um, you know, all of these different uh, business plans were written with the idea that there was an ever increasing appetite for America uh, uh, of Americans to sit and watch, and um, they're up against this hard and fast and totally immovable object, which is that they still only have twenty four hours in the day. And so you still are – you're starting to eat yourself. So HBO, which promoted heavily this show called The Leftovers, you know, huge amount of promotion. You know, it, it kind of opened uh, OK. It did a 1.6. That's not that really that good for them. Uh, certainly not after all that promotion. They're disappointed and, and – um, you know, there are a million reasons for that and they keep saying, well, you know, maybe the show needs time to get going. But the truth is that all that money spent. To release that show, it should have done better, and um, it didn't. And so there's there's concern everywhere. In the corridors of power in Hollywood, they're shaking like leaves. I would just like to say that having seen The Leftovers, I would like to now quote uh, – I would like to be like Jonah and quote Lisa Simpson, which is that I, I didn't believe that it was physically possible for something to both suck and blow at the same time. <laughs> but The Leftovers both sucked and and blue. Um, it well, is I believe terrible. that was actually. I, I thought that was Bart Simpson talking about Old Faithful. That does oh, was, sound, oh. Yeah, anyway, anyway. It, it, it was it was terrible. It was a, a harvest of cliche of every sort of apocalyptic cliche, and you know half of it was lost, and half of it was under the dome, and um, and you know the other great comedy of it. This is inadvertent. Is that it? it it's it basically. Uh, speculates on or it's based on the notion that the uh, the notion of the rapture in which you know uh, God calls to heaven you know the the pure in heart and the pure in soul two uh, percent of the world's population instantly disappear um, and it's net, then it's two years later and the world is living you know without without this two percent of the population. That basically, you know, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. Um, yeah, and the that. notion the notion that perhaps um, uh, if there is a miraculous event, it might cause people to uh, rethink their spiritual and uh, emotional lives and uh, seek uh, uh, salvation um, now that uh, now that the hand of the Almighty has actually shown itself uh, to be real. Um, doesn't seem to have occurred to the people who made the leftovers, who treat this all as though it's just simply a horror you movie scenario. Out. Yeah, right. You know, it's like everything is permitted now. It's like it's like Dostoevsky. Everything's permitted, which would actually, I think, rather be the opposite of how the world would respond to you know evidence of divine of actual divine intervention suggesting uh, the arrival of the end of days. But that's just me. Hey, what do I? Also, two percent's not not enough. You know. It's not enough. It's got to be more. Um, well, so <laughs> maybe five thousand. 
I'm having my pitch. Yeah. I think that the uh, this raises to get back to the earlier conversation. Um, I, I I'm, I'm but well. First of all, let me say I'm tempted to keep my investment in the leftovers for one or two more shows just to see if they can rescue it. But um, I think what. We, by the way, we know they can't rescue it because they shut it down after six episodes to retool. Oh, did so, they really? Okay. They did. So, I mean, that's a, that's evidence that, you know, they knew as they were making it. That you they, never know. They were off. I know. You never you know. know. I think, you know, look, I mean, you, you can, okay. Rob can Nobody talk all he wants. knows anything. Rob can talk all he wants about how people aren't watching TV anymore and this is the, – the Hollywood executives are shaking like a wet poodle or whatever cliche. They're schwitzing. They're going to spill this uh, stuff. <laughs> um, but – some of this, I think, is clearly product-driven, right? Beulah, bring yes. me some more That's my product. next point. But, but the Leftovers is a bad show, and people can kind of sense it. They don't trust that, that, that jag-off from, from Lost. They're not going to be you know, fooled again. Um, and uh, the, the movies that have been out, I mean, the, the article talking about how this summer is bad pointed out how you know, Despicable Me 2 did so well at the same period last year. Well, there is no movie out that is like Despicable Me that whole families want to exactly, go to. Exactly. And it's not, that, it's, by the way, it's not just that. So the big movie that has you know, disappointed, even though it's made $200 million, is Transformers 4. Now, I have happened to have seen Transformers 1, 2, and 3, and the story of Transformers 1, 2, and 3 is that Transformers 1 was surprisingly okay with a lot of funny, unexpected stuff. And Transformers 2 was terrible. And Transformers 3 was dreadful beyond belief. And the notion that after these, you know, this, this degeneration of this product, that you can simply go on making something that, you know, that loses bits and pieces of its audience over time because they go and then they realize that they're experiencing diminishing returns. So you just give them more of the same. Right. It's a very, very interesting and stupid idea. Now, well, but remember, here's what's everything's splitting in half. So Transformers is a huge hit overseas. These are gigantic hits overseas. Right. Tom Cruise movie, huge hit overseas. So if you're if you're part of that picture, part of that business plan, you're fine. Their problem is domestic box office is down because, as you put it, there's no you, you can't take your family to see anything. The same thing with television, by the way. There's no TV like there's no family viewing. It's all once once you fragment the audience and you think that's your that's the path in when you do mass media to profit, and you no longer swing for the fence to try to find a big crowd pleaser. You you end up succeeding, right? You succeed in a way. I mean, the the the, the example here is NBC. NBC decided, you know, six seven years ago under Jeff Zucker that they weren't going to be a big broadcaster anymore. They were going to be a niche broadcaster. Yeah. They thought that was the future, and they succeeded. They are now a niche broadcaster. They're like number six. Um, <laughs> nobody watches their TV, and they go, like, "Well, wait a minute. This wasn't supposed to be this way. Everything was supposed to fall apart with us." And the answer was no, no. You succeeded at doing what you set out to do, which is to destroy your network. You're no longer a broadcast network. <laughs> you know, one of the uh, – this week um, or, or last week, uh, the director, the writer-director, Paul Mazursky, died at the age of 84. Um, 84? He was 84? He was 84. Wow. And he, and, you know, he had this uh, string from 1969 to 19 – I mean on and off until 1985. He made about seven really wonderful movies, which is a pretty remarkable achievement if you think about it. Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, 
Bloom and Love, Next Up Greenwich Village, Harry and Tonto, Moscow and the Hudson and The Tempest, all of which I, I think are to varying degrees really gr- great films. And here's what's interesting. So Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which in some ways was like the girls of its day, the HBO girls or Sex in the City of its day, you know, risque, up to date about what chic people are doing and all of that, which is really a remarkable movie. And if you haven't seen it, I really commend it to you highly. So in its day, adjusted for inflation, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, which was a small movie with no stars, with Natalie Wood, who was then over the hill um, as a star, and Robert Culp and Elliot Gould, who was nobody, and Diane Cannon, who was nobody, made the equivalent of $180 million at the box office. And in the center of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is a scene between Diane Cannon and Elliot Gould, who are a mismatched married couple. And it is a scene in which they go, they are going to bed and she's putting on makeup and he's taking a shower and they're having an argument and it builds and it builds slowly and it builds. And it's one of the best comic portraits of marriage you've ever seen. And the scene lasts for 11 minutes. Oh yeah. Now, Whole imagine, reel. now imagine today, is there a movie in which you can think of a scene that is not an action scene? No. Between two people that takes place over the course of 11 minutes? Now, is that because... There were no some one... scenes in Brokeback Mountain that felt longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I could quit you. <laughs> that's, actually, that's actually the theme of Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice in the scene <laughs> well, that's between the theme of and Diane Cannon. That's but, the theme of um, every romance is I wish I could right. quit you. Right, but but I just wonder, you know, is it that is it that there is now this presumption that people won't stand for something like that? that, that but there is why not, won't they? They there's but a presumption. Why won't they? When I when I first came I'm not to sure Hollywood, anybody can write it. I'm not sure there's anybody no, today. Well, no, nah, that's not true. It's not really it. writing it. It's it, it's not writing. It's the shooting of it. I mean, when I first came to Hollywood, I, I went and heard, heard uh, a, a guy, a producer. Um, very famous producer uh, came and talked to us at the film school at UCLA, and he said he gave a great and passionate thing. He said, "Listen, uh, nobody know you know nobody knows what the public wants. Nobody knows what they stand for. We all think we know. We all think we know what people want. We don't know. The only thing you can do as the writer is to sit down and tell a great story that you love, and tell whatever it is that's in your head and your heart. What write the kind of movie you want to write. Write a movie you want to see." And you've got to sort of connect. You've got to be passionate about it. But you've got to love movies. You've got to tell this great story. And you can tell any story you want as long as you love it and are passionate about it. Any story you want, but not a Western because those don't sell. <laughs> and, and he was right, right? But then somebody made a Western. I think it was Silverado or Young Guns or something. And it made hundred and something million dollars. And, um, and suddenly, you know, nothing works until it works. So. Now people say, well, you can't have these long scenes. You know, these 12 minute, I mean, an 11 minute scene is a whole reel of film. So it's a whole cartridge of 35 millimeter film in one continuous basic take, right? Where you show the wide shot and the people act, the actors act within the frame and they leave and they come back. It's like a 30s or 40s or 50s movie. The way they used to shoot them all the time. Um, and and, and the, 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 the rule is people will not stand for that now. Do not do this. 
because they will not watch it. And if it's on television, as all these things end up being on TV um, or, or, or even encountered first on their on home screen, um, they will just get up and leave because the that generation, the new generation wants lots of cuts and strange angles and weird zooms and all this stuff. And, and, uh, and they're absolutely convinced 100 percent that this is almost with religious conviction that this is the, what people want. All people, young people, medium people, old people, and um, you know, someone's going to do it differently, and then suddenly that'll be a rule that doesn't work anymore. But but you're right. I mean, that that, that part of it was money because you don't have to do that many setups, right? You don't move in for close-ups. You just do a lot of master shots and a lot of angles. And part of it was just that you didn't want to take people out of the scene. You know, the minute you cut into somebody or you cut into a close-up or medium shot, you, you kind of take the viewer out of the scene. Now they're starting to – it's just a little cuttier. And the more energy you keep in the same frame between people – first of all, that's the way comedy always works. Comedy always works with two people on screen together at the same time. Right. Um, so it's, it's a it's – a, it's, it started as a style um, for sort of more comic book action f- uh, movies that were very popular in the 70s um, that are great. Uh, and then it became a rule. So I, I you know, and I, I think that we find ourselves at at a point of diminishing returns because now the great default is well, if you if you just make a movie with a lot of explosions and science fiction, it'll make a lot of money in Asia. So there'll be right. this thing that makes a lot of money in Asia. Now, I'm of the opinion that there's a shell game going on here because I, I just wonder. So you make $300 million in China, right? You announced the box office in China is $300 million. You made $300 million. How much of that do you actually get? I'm, sus- <laughs> I'm, very, <laughs> I'm very suspicious that, you know, the Communist Party takes a slice here and the army takes a cut there and, oh, sir, you know, the check is in the mail and someone's actually collecting the box office receipts from some yeah. city in, you know, Guangzhou province. You know, that would be a really – if in the right movie or the sitcom, it would make a really funny scene to have these commissars of the Chinese Communist Party sitting around going over box office totals from that weekend in Sichuan province. You know, <laughs> Sichuan province likes the action adventure. They don't want the rom com. <laughs> I can't believe they cast Bruce Willis again. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> but yes, the, the short answer to your question is yes. I mean, look, comedy not trouble. It's no more corrupt than it used to be. Where you would have, um, you know, in, in the old days, in the '30s, what studios would do is they would they, they, because it was all cash business, and so the stu- the theater owners would say, I don't know, the seven o'clock uh, show only had about twenty people. And so in the old days, the studios would send out Pinkertons. Pinkerton detectives would go to big cities and uh, in markets where they thought maybe the box office was a little, little loose. And they would – for the 7 o'clock show, they'd buy a ticket at 6 o'clock and they'd buy another ticket at 7.15 and they'd match the numbers on the ticket. And, uh, and they would – that's how they audited. And they would send – they would tell, to telegram back to the studio. Um, you know, the Bijou in St. Louis is skimming. 40%, 50% or 60%. Everybody knew the Bijou in St. Louis was skimming. That wasn't the question. The question was how much, right? There's a certain acceptable amount of graft that everybody knew was going to happen. If they're not stealing um, a little, they're stealing a lot, right? Right. So that's so that was the theory and then the Pinkertons would go and, and do it. And that's how they kind of kept a, a certain amount of 
of uh, of on, I would call it honesty, but a certain amount of transparency, shall we say, in the process. I mean, now you look at a, a, a box office driven, I mean, a theater box office driven business like Bollywood in India, and they have the same problem. It's an all cash business, and who knows how many people were there, and they're going to pay cash for it, and nobody's going to have. There's going to be no record of it. So, you know, if you're the theater owner, or, I mean, if you're the producer, you just hope. But the truth is, if it, if if a studio says three hundred million dollars, they expect that number. They're going to get that number. Right. I, I wouldn't worry. I wouldn't stay up late wondering if I'm really worried that movie they're not going to be ripped off. I know it's really <laughs> terrible. It's absolutely terrible. It's so awful how these how these companies, you know, they're just Boy Scouts. It's not like they don't, you know, steal yeah. steal the grocers, you know, the net profits no, from no, no, from no. other people. No, of course not. No. Well, I mean, I I find it all very uh, very depressing, and I find it depressing professionally as a as a somebody who uh, partially makes a living as a movie critic, because I have to like go out and see things, and there's nothing that not only is there nothing that I want to see, but there's nothing that I can even imagine I could find something to you know to spin 700 words out of, um, and that's you know that's a that's a real problem. I went to see 22 Jump Street. I thought that the original 21 Jump Street was a pretty funny movie, and the guys who made it then made the Lego movie. They're very, very clever, and they made Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs too, which is extremely clever. They're, and 20- they are good guys, too. They, you know what? They are nice guys, too. I know them. They uh-huh. are nice people. You meet them, right. and you think, damn. Yeah, anyway, so they're very, very clever, and the problem with 22 Jump Street is that they had nothing. They didn't come up with anything. So they, the entire movie is a joke about how it's a sequel and it's worse than the previous movie. It has exactly the same plot. It has exactly the same situations. And all <laughs> along, the, you know, people can say, we did this before, but it was funnier the first time. Or it was more involved before, or something like that. And, you know, after a while, you're like, yeah, you're, you're right. It really was funnier the first time. Like, stop already. Do something else. Do something else. You know? Um, and, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of dispiriting, I think. Uh, to to go to watch such a thing and and think well you know this really is just like an effort to just take money out of my pocket. Well, it's a summer. Yeah. The idea was that everybody, when you make a movie and 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 you and you get the new when you when you make the picture, you put the picture together. There's like no one no one commits to the release date. So when you get the release date and it's a summer release date, you get really excited. And you change the movie a bit. You go, oh, it's a summer movie. It's got to be different. It's a summer movie. So people in the summer do have different attitudes just in general, and they do watch things differently. That's why in the autumn when the kids go back to school, there's the, the adult movies come out, the, for the awards season. You know, In the autumn where all the, all, it's all the, um, you know, the message pictures come out. Uh, uh, and so the summer is supposed to be fun, and you, everybody wants to have that crazy summer picture that just catches fire because – that's what the movies and the summer movies are all about, and um, and you can see the the the, the deal memo driven content in Twenty Two Jump Street because it's like, well, Twenty One did well, that means we have to do Twenty Two, uh, and it's going to be a summer picture, so let's let's at least have fun with that. And well, the reality is that people just want to go see a good movie. That, that's one of the reasons why that. Um, the Fault is in Our Stars movie, the romantic movie yep. about the, you know, the, the, you know, it's got everything. It's got teenage romance and cancer, right? The, these are things that, these are verities, like show business, mm-hmm. you know, uh, stalwarts. You, if you can't make money with attractive people in love 
with you know a debilitating terminal disease, then you should be do something else. And that movie did huge, did huge, and there are no stars in it because the right. the story is such a perfect summer story, summer movie story. So what what, what is the argument against them not make? I mean, why, why aren't they making more movies that adults can take their little kids to? I mean, it seems to me that they always seem to do better. They always seem to have a longer tail. You're sort of getting at least two tickets for every you know kid you attract because the parents have to go with them. And there's more merchandising and, and all of that. And yet there's – I mean my daughter loves the movies. I love Out of the Heat and taking uh, my kid to the movies, and I know I'm not alone in this, is one of these things that sort of dads get you know extra credit for getting the kid out of the house kind of thing. And it's not that much of a burden. And yet there's so few that come out. I mean, it's really, I, I just find it surprising. Well, this year apparently is anomalous because a couple of projects that were supposed to come out this year, there was a Pixar movie and a couple of others apparently ran into production difficulties and they postponed them a year. So there's actually a, and then you yeah. of course have the other thing, which is that now though you want it out in the summer, Frozen came out in November and did enormous business for six months. So now everyone's going to want to re- release their big animated movie in November because Frozen made a billion dollars in November until the next time that somebody makes a lot of money in the summer and then they'll want to make the movie in the summer because they're a lot of cattle. So um, now I now have to bring up something slightly embarrassing, maybe as our, our, our final topic. Um, uh, I wasn't going to do this, but again, our notable producer Scott suggests this as a topic, and I believe I, I, you know, because I'm a masochist and it's self-immolation, I suppose I should uh, bring this up. That um, uh, I, I, I had a um, uh, an abbreviated uh, debut as a featured uh, a presence <laughs> on right. the uh, rick, ricochet.com uh, uh, website uh, when. Um, Scott uh, uh, put up uh, a review of mine of the uh, actually pretty good Tom Cruise movie Edge of Tomorrow um, and asked me to engage with the community uh, on Ricochet and uh, and uh, and uh, very quickly uh, it devolved into uh, a uh, a fight why, broke why, out. Why is that? Why did it? I well. A fight broke out, and I, I guess that's the end of it. Well, here's what happened. It's very simple. So, Have I stunned you? This review – no, this re- this review was posted. And so the whole idea was to talk about the review. And then somebody said, you know what I really don't like? This piece is in the Weekly Standard, and they sometimes the Weekly Standard makes you click to page two, and the only thing on page two is your bio. So they're trying to, they're trying to steal uh, my bio – and, uh, and, you know, they're trying to steal a page view. So, you know, how dare you or something? So I then said, uh, are you a paying subscriber? If not, then don't complain. Because you're getting, you're getting to read something for free. At which point, uh, at which point uh, I was then accused of, yeah, it's not free. You're selling, you're, you're selling me. I'm your reader, and you're selling me for advertiser right. bait. At which point, I said, "You're you're worth about point oh 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 one percent of a penny as an advertising as an advertising draw." So don't think of that. And then 
I don't know, it got kind of ugly, and then I was like, all right, to hell with it. So is that me or them? <laughs> Jonah? Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I want to say, I, I love the Ricochet commenters. I think they are wise and sagacious people, and uh, and I want, I want no part of this controversy in any way, shape, or form. I, I actually thought I was being relatively informative in saying, "Look, I run a I run a magazine. Um, uh, we yeah. and I work at a magazine. We're giving you a lot of content for free, and and for you to like eat up time complaining that you have to that that you click on an extra page because then that annoys you when everything you're doing, reading, yeah. yeah, no, no. In this case, in the Weekly Standard, a Weekly Standard. Yeah, that you know, you have to you click, and then there's only a bio on the on the next page, and that somehow you're being screwed because you have to because it says page two, and you right. click there, and it just says John Podhoretz is our movie critic. That that seems a little churlish, given that given that basically you're going somewhere and you're getting something for nothing. And I actually thought by saying I didn't say it was churlish. I just said you know you don't really have a right to complain. You're reading something that's being supplied to you for free. Now, people do. People think that they are ordinary consumers when they read something on a computer that they're reading for nothing. And they're actually, they really aren't. And this is one of the you know, grievous errors that was made in the course of publishing over the last 20 years was this you know, psychotic decision that was made by a lot of people in the early 90s to hand out content for free, not right. understanding that they were, they were destroying their own businesses by doing so. Yeah. But what was weird is that you were, t- you were, you were, you were doing movie reviews. Yeah. So then it got kind of sideways into the Weekly Standard right, and, page yeah, the, view right, deal. Exactly. Exactly. But that, so. that, that is what happens in, I mean, in comment sections generally. And I understand that Ricochet is not a normal comment section. It's a moderated forum. A and polite, it's, yeah. Yeah, and it's, more, and it's part of its whole brand is, is to be more polite and have real conversations and all of that. But, you know, this is what, what this is what happens when you give people an opportunity to talk to you is that they bring up their peeves and I don't blame them for bringing up their peeves but then John is going to give them an honest answer and the next thing you know you know lamps are flying right I mean, I mean this- lamps did, lamps didn't exactly <laughs> fly I just think people can also say all right that's a fair point you know that's the part of the problem of this is like that, that's also the problem with these you know is this a good room for an argument you know that uh, the Monty Python skit you know no it isn't yes it is no it isn't <laughs> you know is is somebody somebody brings up a point and you answer the point and then they can't let it go. you know they can't let it go it's like but I still think it's not fair well I, I just explained to you why what you're saying Given the givens of a business that is not your business, you might you know understand better. And then it's like, no, no, no. it's like, well, why am I? Why are you? Why are you picking a fight with me? I'm just like, I'm here to have a conversation with you, and you're picking about a fight. movies. Yeah, it's, you're picking a fight with the me internet. about paid because it's <laughs> this the is internet. the internet. Exactly. <laughs> That's what we do here. <laughs> so it's my fault. So, so what are you? Are, are but I mean, are are you saying that? Um, I'm trying to I'm figure, out, that figure out how to put this. I say something, the right thing to say in response to me in the Ricochet comment section is, that's gold, Jerry, gold. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I'm saying you should all just be quiet and accept 
the, <laughs> the pearls of wisdom okay. that are being All distributed right. to you. Well, now we know. Now we know. That wasn't clear. I, okay. I mean, just I'm happy. And if you thank me, I will be very gracious in response by saying thank you for acknowledging the genius that I have just proffered to you. But um, – but, uh, you know, it's like I, 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 have, I have three children at home. I get enough argument. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like I need to argue. It's like a, it's not like a conversation. If people just sort of like don't are like dogs with bones, you know, that is like when my, my four-year-old wants my iPad and I say, well, you can't have it because it's charging. It's like, I want, my, I want your iPad. I want your iPad. I want your iPad. You know, at some point it's like, okay, I have to walk into the other room now. Because you're driving me crazy. <laughs> well, um, I'm trying to figure out just Maybe how to, you don't like that analogy. I, but. No, well, I mean, I, I would say, and I say this with huge affection and yes. respect. Thank you. That, um, you know, you're, you're, you're a New Yorker. <laughs> <laughs> you know Why, what? What? What kind of code word is that? <laughs> yeah, like, you know, like you, you kind of you're 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 a born and bred New Yorker. You, you walk around like the, there's a there's a certain friction that happens in New York. It's kind of it, an itchy muffler kind of a place where like you you, you get into stuff and um and there's that. Bertha, bring me some pork. <laughs> <laughs> this is a little of that, and so. And some a, gratin, and some yeah. gratin potatoes, and so I so I would and a say, Jello mold. so I would say that um, if you were to return, and you, I would love to have you back if you if you're willing to do it, and and talk about movies, and if someone wants to talk about the Weekly Standard uh, thing, you, you you say your piece, and then you kind of you can move on. You don't have to engage. Um, uh, that's the benefit of Ricochet. You don't really have to engage in everything. A lot, a lot of times, things happen so fast, and some people want to talk about something, and other people don't want to talk about it. And uh, you know, that's like a, like a normal conversation. So that's that's how a conversation goes. And you just, you know, you, just, you said your thing, and that's that. All right, I'll try it again. But I I'm, I just want to say <laughs> that if a guy if you a were, guy are, on the Ricochet yeah. if a guy yeah. in the Ricochet podcast yeah. said I'm in the oil exploration business. And here's how it works. You do this and you dig here and the oil, you bring up the oil and you have to, it has to be done this and that. I would go, that's very interesting. You know, thank you for, thank you for, oh, thank you for letting me in on this fascinating uh-huh. bit of inside information about how your business runs. Right. But, it, you know, it's like uh, instead, instead it's like people then give you, you know, like teach your grandmother how to suck eggs. As, uh, if if you know that uh, old old phrase, don't teach your grandmother how to suck eggs. Is all I'm saying. So on the Ricochet podcast, all the commenters, what I want them to do is I'll write about a movie, and then they should t- tell me about their time in the oil exploration business, <laughs> or or discuss the movie, or discuss the movie, which is the other, which is I the see. other, uh, which is the other thing. And people said very interesting things about the movie, including quite appropriately that it's pretty good. It's not great. It's pretty good. Bad last twenty minutes, but it's pretty good. Which movie was this? I've lost that. In this Ed, Edge of Edge of Tomorrow with Tom yeah. Cruise. Okay. Yeah, apparently it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's not great. It's pretty good. How much is Tom Cruise on the screen? Like all of it? All of it. Yeah. It's all him, and then it's Emily Blunt, who looks like she hasn't had a meal in five years. 
So that we were talking before about how Tom Hanks wants all movies named after himself, or he wants to be the title character in all of them. Yeah. There's a similar thing I have with movies where the, the star in, is either a clone or a twin or a time traveler, because invariably it is an excuse to have that actor in every scene. So you're, um, you're now referring to every Tom Cruise movie. And, and a lot of Jean, Jean-Claude just, Van Damme you just, movies. You, right? just, you he, just talked about his last movie, Oblivion, yeah. in which he was both a clone and a twin. That's right. And uh, a time traveler in, uh, in Edge of Tomorrow. So yeah. imagine if the clone twin does time travel. That, that, that would be, be mind-blowing. That would still be a twin, just like once removed, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you clone a twin, now of course, identical twins are actually genetical clones. That's, That's a, right. And now I think we're degenerating. So I, yeah. I think. And my, and my dog perhaps, is, about, is going back. So, so, so this, this conversation is fine, but someone wants to talk about the weekly standard page view. Uh, it's, right. it's, it's, it's a That's federal right. issue. Right. We've like, you know, we got to bring out the big guns. That's right. That's right. Clam up. <laughs> Clam up and be thankful that you're getting inside information about the page view business. That's what I'm saying. All right. All right. No, don't clam up. Clam on. It's fine. Clam off. Whatever Whatever the opposite of down. Clam down. Um, and now uh, with, I think, perhaps the worst last five minutes in the history of this podcast, we should probably uh, end this podcast with uh, – with, uh, with uh, the news that uh, Rob's show Sullivan and Son is back on the air with new episodes, is that correct? Back on the air with new episodes. We had kind of, speaking of low uh, ratings, we didn't have low ratings, but we had ratings that were slightly off the first uh, the first week, and then we climbed back to where we should be in the second week. And last uh, tonight is the third week, uh, and I think we'll do pretty well. So, you know, and I saw last week's, and it was funny. So okay. there you go. And uh, Jonah, do you have any bits of uh, uh, pearls of wisdom and promotion? Uh, not really. I um, I'm going to be on a panel at the Heritage Foundation talking about whether we need another Reagan. Uh, that's going to be tomorrow. And uh, I have a very long, but I think quite good piece in the latest issue of Commentary, which I it, I plugged. Commentary. Commentary uh, Magazine, edited by me, by, and with the title, Mr. Pickety's Big Book of Marxiness. Go to commentarymagazine.com, read it. It is a masterpiece. Uh, I'm very uh, how, how do the page views work on that? Page, yeah, views, page views are very high, and Commentary now has a metering system. So come eight times a month, and then the ninth time, please subscribe. Because it's time to subscribe. You can do for, so for as little as 99 cents a month. And don't hold your rage against John against me um, because I think it's worth reading. So there you go. And I never plug my own. And it's well worth reading. And Hillary Clinton today admitted that she hasn't read Piketty. And so I have uh, sent the link to various Hillary people I know to see if uh, maybe she might want to read Jonah's piece. Since she says she hasn't read it, but she agrees with it. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing. Anyway, uh, I have uh, I have uh, I have nothing uh, nothing to plug. Though I will be at the Hoover Institution next week, communing with uh, Hooverites, including uh, including uh, Ricochet co-founder Peter Robinson. Um, 
and uh, and I will be uh, dining at uh, wonderful uh, Palo Alto uh, establishments and uh, and uh, perhaps uh, seeking a billion dollars in venture capital for my new your app uh, for my new Uber clone in which you order a bicycle. Um, Actually, a quick story. Uber sent out an email to people in New York saying that they are now starting Ubercopter. Ubercopter, a service of Uber that will take you from New York City to the Hamptons for only $500 a seat on the Ubercopter. That's brilliant. Isn't that brilliant? The best thing is when you order it, it comes on your phone and it says it will be there in five minutes. It's a uh, you know it's a Sikorsky two and the driver's name is Mamadou. <laughs> <laughs> and he's rated four and a half stars. That's four and a half stars, yeah. exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, so thank you very much. We will we will uh, we will uh, we will we will gather anew and maybe under uh, under uh, worse world circumstances, but we will be cheerful because, as Irving Crystal said, Jonah, one can always one- live well. One can still live well. That's right. So thank you very much, and, uh, and have a great summer. See you next time, fellas. See ya. See ya. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when we live in our dreams. Everything is better when we stick together. Side by side, you and I. Three years later, I shot the frosting. Smelling like a blossom. Everything is awesome. Stepped in mud, got new brown shoes. Lost in the wind, and it's lost in the loom. Lost in the loom. Lost in the loom. Lost in the Join the conversation. Blue skies, bouncy springs. We just named two awesome things. A Nobel Prize, a piece of string. You know what's awesome? Everything. Dogs and fleas. Allergies. A book of Greek antiquities. Brand new pants. A very old vest. Awesome items are the best. Trees, drugs, clogs. They're awesome. Rocks, clocks, and socks. They're awesome. Figs and jigs and twigs. That's awesome. I didn't think it was physically possible, but this both sucks and blows.